Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Yeah, there's no management lessons in it. I'm sure, I'm sure you can find some from a librarian. There must be. Hello and welcome to episode three of the FT Business Book Challenge podcast, the place to discover the best in business writing. I'm Helen Barrett, the FT's Work and Careers Editor. With me is Michael Skopinka, FT columnist. Welcome. Hello. The idea behind this podcast is simple. We're challenging you to read six classic business books in 12 weeks. Each book is chosen by an FT columnist. You get two weeks to read it before we drag our colleague back into the studio to talk about why all business leaders should read their choice of book. And for those too busy to read, we offer you a bluffer's guide at the end of the show. We would love it if you joined in the discussion by tweeting us using the hashtag FTBizBooks or by emailing us at businessbookclub at ft.com. This week, we've reached our third challenge. In episode three, Michael set us the task of reading a novel, Joseph Heller's Catch-22. But before we get to that book, here's the question we always start with. Michael, what are you reading at the moment? Well, I'm reading a book called Einstein's Greatest Mistake, which is a a biography of Einstein by uh, David Bodanis. Uh, David Bodanis is a uh, very accomplished science writer. He's very good at writing about science for an intelligent general audience. I read a book of David's called E equals MC squared years ago. And uh, when I became editor of the Weekend FT, I started commissioning David. And um, I should say David's now a friend. (laughs) So you know him. I know him. And this book is a very interesting one because it's about as the title suggests, Einstein's greatest mistake. Einstein, obviously, the greatest genius possibly ever, made one huge mistake, which is uh, that he thought that the universe was static. Mm. He didn't believe it was expanding. (laughs) And this really was sort of the biggest error he made, and it's one that people remember about him. So it's just really, it's a great biography. It's very personal, tells you a lot about Einstein's personal life. It explains Einstein's thinking quite clearly, And I think David's great strength is explaining these things clearly and also explains how he came to make this mistake. How did he cope with making a mistake? Or did he ever acknowledge that it was Well, actually, this is... I'm only halfway through, and I'm very interested to see how he copes with it because I'm not (laughs) sure yet. It's becoming apparent to him. I mean, he first coped with his mistake by trying to um, adjust his formulae Mm. and trying to make what he believed. So in denial. Yeah. I mean, I'm still in the stage of denial. And, um, (laughs) you know, it'd be interesting to see how it comes out. And this was also a terrible time in his personal life. Um, His marriage had broken up. He lost contact with his, or he struggled to maintain contact with his two sons who he adored. The uh, woman who he went to and who broke up his marriage turned out to be not the kind of companion he thought. Unlike his first wife, she wasn't 
that sort of interested or that accomplished at understanding what he was doing. So he's at a very sort of difficult stage personally. And we're coming up to the stage where he realizes that um, being Jewish in the German-speaking world was going to become a problem for him as well. Mm. So it's a, a very interesting stage of the book. What are the leadership or management lessons? I think there's one, there's one very obvious one, which is we all have our blind spots. <laughs> and um, I think this is a very important business lesson, a very important management lesson. We get stuck in a certain way of seeing the world and we become completely, completely committed to it, overcommitted to it, in fact. And once you've done that, it's very, very difficult to backtrack. So I think uh, that's quite an important business lesson. I think that's quite an important business failure, a very, very common one. You meet a lot of... Uh, very senior managers is 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 that something that you think uh, is is a plague on on modern modern management yes i think it's a plague on all of us really we all have a certain framework for seeing the world and then we all suffer from confirmation bias mm. we see our own v- worldview confirmed in everything that we see and everything that we hear and we tend to dismiss contrary evidence we tend to discount it uh, most mistakes in most of our lives and most business mistakes, I think, happen for exactly this reason. Mm. And that brings us very neatly onto your choice of novel, Catch 22. It's a novel, not a classic business book, which is a really interesting choice. And I think you're the first guest that's chosen a novel. Um, but anyway, as we do every week, we'll do the blurb. Described by one American critic as a Marx Brothers script written by Franz Kafka, and by another as All Quiet on the Western Front, written by Lewis Carroll, this satirical novel is the story of soldiers trapped in a perpetual and very surreal state of war. But it's much more than that. Here's the blurb. Set in the closing months of World War II in an American bomber squadron off the coast of Italy, Catch-22 is the story of a bombardier named Yossarian, who is frantic and furious because thousands of people he has never even met keep trying to kill him. Joseph Heller's best-selling novel is a hilarious and tragic satire on military madness and the tale of one man's efforts to survive it. Michael, is that a fair description? It is a fair description, and I suppose it raises the question of why on earth have I chosen this as a business book? <laughs> I did wonder. It's really a book about military life. I think I should give a little bit of a background of my, my history with the book, and I think all of our histories with the book. The, the book was published in 1961, and for those of us who grew up in the subsequent decades in the 1960s and the 1970s, this became a book you had to have read. Uh, it was a very important book. It is, I think, generally regarded as one of the uh, great works of uh, post-World War II American fiction. And Catch-22, as a phrase, of course, has entered the language. And most people say a Catch-22, and um, they think they know what it means. They do know what it means. It means something that either way, you're screwed. Mm -hmm. Whatever you do, (laughs) it's not going to work out for you. And um, I mean, Catch-22, the way in which this comes up, as you say, this is a book set in the closing days of of World War II. And these are American airmen off the coast of Italy who are having to run these bombing missions to end the war. Uh, They're bombing uh, German emplacements in uh, Nazi-occupied Italy. Uh, The war has reached the stage where they're not actually confronted by German fighters in the skies. Uh, The danger to them uh, comes from anti-aircraft fire from the ground. And um, Yossarian, who is the hero and protagonist of this book, uh, reading the book um, is quite clearly suffering from what we would now call a post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, He's seen some terrible things during war. He's only 28 years old, uh, but a lot of the people who are flying with him are much younger. Some Mm -hmm. of them are really just boys. 
And they've seen terrible things. He has seen colleagues shot down. He's seen other planes go down in flames. And the thing that has affected him particularly is in his own plane, a, a, a bit of flak penetrated the plane and killed one of his crew members in very traumatic circumstances. And Yossarian has basically decided he cannot fly anymore. He's just too traumatized. So he goes to the uh, doctor on his base and he asks to be grounded. And the doctor said to him, well, there's a problem. Um, you have to be crazy to fly these missions. And uh, you're asking to be grounded because you're too scared. And that shows you're not crazy. And therefore, because you're not crazy, you have to fly. And that is Catch-22. Uh, we never hear what Catches 1 to 21 are <laughs> in the subsequent Catches. And in fact, Joseph Heller uh, originally intended to call the book Catch-18. Really? But, yes, but there was a Leon Uris book. Uh, with 18 in the title, and uh, so he decided to go for Catch-22 instead. Now, um, it's also quite a controversial book in the sense that um, World War II, for those of us who grew up in allied countries, or I suppose for people all over the world, World War II was seen as a good war, a just war, and a justified war. Mm -hmm. I, I certainly see it that way. Um, my own father served in Italy in the allied forces, just as Yossarian did. It came out though in 1961, and it really sort of caught the mood of the Vietnam War, mm -hmm. which people did not regard as a, um, a just war. Many people were opposed to it. And so Catch-22 came to be seen as an anti-war novel and very much a, an anti-military novel. So now we come to your question, why have I chosen this as a business book when it's not a business book at all? <laughs> um, I think I've chosen it as a business book because I, I read this book, I have to say, f probably 40 years ago. And I have dipped back in and out of it because I have absolutely, I've always remembered the hierarchical and bureaucratic absurdities that it describes. Mm. And I've dipped in to read these. But this is the first time in all these years that I've read it again to cover to cover. I read it all the way through. I would say it's, first of all, absolutely brilliantly written. I mean, it is very funny. It's got quite a strange format. It's not written chronologically. There's a constant looping back to earlier events and we get to know them in more detail. It's got some wonderful pieces of writing. Um, I've just chosen two. There's a description of uh, the uh, face of uh, one of the characters, one of the airmen called Hungry Joe. Uh, and Heller says, it was a desolate, cratered face, sooty with care, like an abandoned mining town. Yes, that's a, that's a fantastic simile. I mean, it's littered with these brilliant little phrases and little similes. It was his first book, wasn't it? He wrote it, just to go back a bit to what you were saying, he wrote it... It, it did catch the mood of the Vietnam War, but he started writing it in 1953, even though it wasn't published until 1961. And it was almost like he prefigured the mood of the mid to late 1960s. It's almost like it somehow kick-started this mood we, we've come to associate with the 1960s. It absolutely did. And uh, on university campuses around America during the Vietnam War, uh, students who didn't want to go to Vietnam used to carry signs saying, I am your Syrian. Yes. So it was much more associated with the uh, Vietnam War than with um, World War II. I'll just tell you another phrase I absolutely love. There's a, a character in the book called Nately, who's quite an important character in the book. And uh, Heller says, Nately ripped off his hat and began rocking back and forth happily like a handsome child in a high chair. <laughs> 
So why have I chosen it as a business book? I think it's descriptions of the way in which business life works, hierarchical life works, organizational yes. life works, is so true. I think it, it's, it's far broader than the military. The kind of things that uh, Heller describes are things that really happen in all organizations. And um, it's for that reason, with one significant reservation, which I'll come to in a, in a minute, that I think all people in business should should read it. I'll just give you some of the examples of some of the things that I think are um, in organizational life. One of the most important, one of the most ridiculous and interesting characters in the book is um, uh, Yossarian's superior, Colonel Cathcart. Yes. Now, Colonel Cathcart, what Colonel Cathcart does is every time the airmen, particularly Yossarian, whose story we hear, every time they reach the number of missions that they're required to do before they go home, Cathcart increases the missions. So when your Syrian thinks, I've reached 40, he increases it to 45. Because at the start of the book, it's something like 20, isn't it? Yes, and, and, and it's we, 24. We, and yes, it's we have to remember that Heller himself was an <laughs> airman in, in World War II and flew 60 bombing missions. So he knew what he was talking about. So, so Cathcart wants to fly all these missions. He wants to keep increasing them because he wants to make an impression on his superiors, on the generals, and he wants to become a general. He wants promotion. And what he's sort of upset about is that um, the generals don't really pay any attention to this. And this is why he keeps trying to impress them. And we've all seen this. Mm. We've all seen the manager, middle to senior manager, constantly trying to make an impression on his superiors and doing it at the expense of their own people, of their own troops or their own subordinates. And uh, the description of Cathcart by um, Heller, which I, I will just quote, and I'm sure we all recognize these people. <laughs> he was a blustering, intrepid bully who brooded inconsolably over the terrible, ineradicable impressions he knew he kept making on people of prominence who were scarcely aware that he was even alive. This is interesting, isn't it? What is it about organisations that makes people behave like this? Well, Whether it be the Air Force or, you know, an investment bank. I think the thing is organisations are hierarchical and therefore they are filled with people with ambition, people who want to climb the hierarchy. And the way they climb the hierarchy is not by impressing the people below them, but by impressing the people above them. And the way to impress people above them is to say, oh, yes, my department can do this. You know, but they're not the ones who have to do it. And this is sort of, I think, typical of Colonel Cathcart. Colonel Cathcart actually keeps a balance sheet. He keeps a piece of paper on which he notes down <laughs> all the feathers in his cap and all the black eyes. So that's the one interesting thing about Colonel Cathcart. The other interesting thing about him is there's something else that he wants. And this is apart from impressing his superiors. or Actually, this is a way to impress his superiors. He reads in the Saturday Evening Post about an officer at an American Air Force base based in England who has prayers before his, before his airmen fly. So he calls in the chaplain, who is probably the most sympathetic character in this book, yes. and says to the chaplain, look, I want you to have prayers before we fly so that I can get into the Saturday <laughs> evening post. I mean, once again, you see this in many organizations. He hasn't even got a PR person to tell him, look, Colonel, that story's already <laughs> been done. You have to do something else. But, I mean, the, the, the chaplain, it's interesting you mention him because he is... He's an ineffectual figure, isn't he? He is an ineffectual figure, but he's the moral force in the book. Mm. And without sort of spoiling things too much, he suddenly towards the end becomes much more effectual. He starts standing up for people and he starts going to the people higher up and saying, you cannot keep increasing these missions. You are driving these people over the edge. And uh, so that's one aspect of it. Colonel Cathcart is now. The other thing which comes through very, very strongly is 
orders from above mm -hmm. and people down the line uh, transmitting these orders without really thinking about whether they make any sense or not, without thinking about whether they're the right thing to do or not, and just saying, look, this is what we've been told to do. Uh, there's one very, I mean, I have to say this book is, it's viciously comic. It's also desperately sad because it's very, very violent. And yeah. it's dealing with these young men who, their tragedy is they know the war is over and the war is won, and yet they could still be killed right at the end. And there's one moment of great compassion uh, where um, they are told uh, that they're going to bomb a village, an Italian village. Uh, a defenseless a, village. A defenseless village up on a mountain. And the reason they're going to bomb it is that uh, the idea of the higher-ups is that the, the rubble of this village will tumble down onto the road below and create a roadblock which the German army will not be able to pass. And the airmen revolt against this. And they say, we're going to be killing so many innocent people. And what's even worse is when we fly over to bomb this village, the children are going to come out of their houses to look at us. We're the friendly allies. They're going to come out and look at our planes. And then we're going to bomb them and we're going to kill them. And they say, look, we, we really just don't think this is necessary. Why can't we just bomb the road? That will create a roadblock. And they're told, look, this is what you've been told to do. So just go ahead and do it. This is what we've been told to do. We can't question these orders. Now, you know, the military and obviously military and wartime is a very, very special situation. But I think people in all sorts of organizations have found themselves in this situation of saying, look, or people, middle management, told, look, I might not agree with this, but this is what we have to do. Mm. Um, when, when everybody can see the absurdity. Yeah. There's another wonderfully comic, um, uh, there's another wonderfully comic episode uh, with a, a general called General Dreedle. Yes. And uh, General Dreedle is in the middle of a briefing before a bombing raid, and uh, everybody is very, very nervous about it. And they keep groaning and moaning. And eventually General Dreedle says, I am uh, not going to put up with any moaning. I really don't want to hear any moaning. Now, can we just get on with this, please, without any moaning? And when he stops, there's an officer called Major Danby who realizes he's been trying to get everybody to synchronize their watches while all this is going on. And when General Dreedel finishes his instructions telling them not to moan, he realizes none of them have synchronized their watches. <laughs> so he moans. He goes, oh, he moans. <laughs> anyway, uh, if I could just read what happens next, because I think um, it's, it's something that so many people, once again, can uh, recognize from their own organizations. So Danby moans. What was that? roared General Dreedle incredulously and whirled around in a murderous rage upon Major Danby, who staggered back in terrified confusion and began to quail and perspire. Who is this man? Major Danby, sir, Colonel Cathcart stammered, my group operations officer. Take him out and shoot him, <laughs> ordered General Dreedle. <laughs> sir? I said, take him out and shoot him, can't you hear? Yes, sir, Colonel Cathcart responded smartly, swallowing hard, and turned in a brisk manner to his chauffeur and his meteorologist. Take Major Danby out and shoot him. Sir, his chauffeur and his meteorologist stammered. I said, take Major Danby out and shoot him, Colonel Cathcart snapped. Can't you hear? Now, eventually, somebody intervenes. It's actually General <laughs> Dreedle's uh, son-in-law and says, whispers in his Hated son-in-law. Hated yeah. son-in-law. <laughs> actually, you can't just take him out and shoot him. He says, can't I? Now, once again, I think this is a wonderful passage, which just is this, I've been told to do this. The boss has told me to do this. Don't question me. You know, mm -hmm. the boss has told me to do this. Can't you understand? And 
I, I think, um, you know, this is, this is a classic case. I mean, many of us have been dreedled. Yes. I've actually written yes. a column to this, this effect. We've been told, do <laughs> something, and you then pass it on to somebody else because you don't want to do it. I'm thinking rather uncomfortably <laughs> of my own, <laughs> my own experience there, but you're absolutely right. Yeah. You're absolutely right. I think one of the things that struck me about it is this strange narrative structure. So the events are described from different points of view. Yes. And there's not a conventional timeline. We keep going back and learning more about each event from each iteration. And the reader pieces together the timeline over the process of the different sections of the book. And it strikes me that, certainly my own experience in the workplace, is that often it's quite like that. You realise, you hear a piece of information maybe three months, four months after an event, and then everything suddenly becomes clear about what seemed absurd at the time. Is that something you... I think that's life, really. Mm. And, you know, this is obviously sort of, you know, a a, a form of writing which... um, you know, we can we can all recognise as well as being about life. It presents you with different points of view. Mm. And it makes you much more sympathetic to each of the characters as you go through the book, which is probably the point at which, as I say, we, we, we're, we're proposing business books which we think that every business person should read. And I said earlier, I've got a major reservation about this book, um, which I think I should talk about. And coming back to this book after, as I say, not having read it for 40 years, it really struck me. This is not a book which is friendly to women. It's not. It's really not. So it's. I think there's an air of misogyny, really, mm. cer- certainly through the earlier parts of it. Is the, that because it's a product of its time, or it's, is there it's, more to it? I think. Is, well, it certainly is, but I think there is more to it. I mean, I suppose what's so uncomfortable about the earlier parts of the book, certainly reading them now, um, and I would imagine for many people reading it at the time, the female characters are nurses, Italian prostitutes, mm. and officers' wives. And really, their only function in the book for most of it is to be sexually available. There's one particularly horrible um, scene where Yossarian and one of the others gropes a nurse when they're in hospital. You know, this is clearly recognisable as a sexual assault. Very, very relevant. Very relevant today. To 2016. So this worried me all the way through the book. When you get towards the end... And the final chapters, without giving too much away, move into an incredibly bombed out, destroyed, um, absolutely shattered Rome. And it's here that you start to see more compassion coming into this. You start to see more compassion coming into your Syrian. And you start to see that, you know, not that this is an excuse, that perhaps these attitudes to women were the result of these young men, as I say, some of them just about no, not much older than boys, about to die. And what happens towards the end is your Syrian becomes tremendously, tremendously exercised as what has happened to these Italian women that they've all been associated with. And in particular, the young sister, the 12-year-old sister of one of the prostitutes, who your Syrian is determined to find and rescue. Um, as I say, I can quite understand why people reading this book will say, look, this is a very male book. This is a very male environment, after all, World War Two. I can see why people would say it's a very male book uh, and therefore isn't of universal appeal. I think those final chapters, to some extent, put everything that went before in a bit of context. I'm not saying it excuses it, certainly looking at it from our, our viewpoint today. But I think you get a bit more compassion and a bit more sense 
At the end, Yossarian goes into, as I say, this completely shattered, destroyed Rome where um, the prostitutes that they knew, the Italian prostitutes, have all been chased away by the American military police. And Yossarian is particularly concerned about the younger sister of one of them, this 12-year-old girl, and he's very worried about what's happened to her. And uh, this is now in Yossarian's voice. This is Heller's writing, but representing what Yossarian says in Rome. Uh, Yossarian says, Every victim was a culprit. Every culprit a victim, and somebody had to stand up sometime to try to break the lousy chain of inherited habit that was imperiling them all. I think that's a very powerful passage, and I think it, to some extent, redeems everything that's gone before, because I think what Heller, what Yossarian is saying, they're all victims in this situation, and people are picking on each other. Uh, as I say, it's a very bleak conclusion in that sense, although without giving too much away, there is redemption at the end. There is redemption. And, uh, you know, I do think um, as a way of discussing what's happening in any organization, this is a very powerful book. I think one of the most powerful, and having reread it with all my reservations, I still do not think I've read a book which is as powerful or as insightful about organizational life. I'd like to bring in Janina Convoy, our producer, who has been rummaging in the FT library to find out how we covered the book in the past. Janina, what did you find? Well, I found a few things. We reviewed the book in 1962. Um, the review was quite short, but one thing it did highlight, just to quote from the review, it said, but the truth is that Catch-22 is blessedly, monstrously, bloatedly, cynically, satirically, funnily and fantastically unique. No one has ever written a book like this and no one, including Joseph Heller, will ever be able to do so again. Who wrote that review? Um, someone called Arthur Calder Marshall. Arthur Calder Marshall. It's a brilliant line. Yes, it is. Um, and he concludes that um, this long pagan hymn of praise for being alive at all costs will shock thee better dead than red crusaders and delight anyone whose life has been at the mercy of strategists. <laughs> and we did a lunch with the FT with Joseph Heller. It was by Peter Aspden and I actually don't have the year to hand. It was 1995. Yeah. It was the year before he died. The year before he Yeah, died. in fact, he mentions how he's aware that he's coming to the end of his life. So how old was he at this point? He was 75. Right. He died really not that old. No. He died of a heart attack at 76. What did Heller tell us? What, what did um, he say about catch Well, actually, he, he tells Peter Aston that he looks around and sees everywhere the indefatigably entrepreneurial Milo Mindbinder. Like capitalism, he was amoral, he provided good things and bad things, he didn't think about the consequences, he was antisocial and unpatriotic. In fact, he was a forerunner of the multinational corporation and the global economy. <laughs> Mike, is that a fair assessment of Milo Mindbinder? In fact, why don't you start by telling us about Milo well, Mindbinder? Well, Milo Mindbinder, when you talk about is this a business book, I suppose you could say Milo Mindbinder is the... Um, is the business character in it. Yes. Uh, he is a, a completely surreal character. I mean, it's very strange. He, he starts out just being in charge of the, the mess. He starts out just being in charge of, you know, feeding the airmen. And he, he does things like he sends planes to different places because he hears there's some fresh fruit or some fresh vegetables. And from this initial start of kind of getting fresher food for people, he builds up this absolutely fantastical multinational corporation called M&M. &M. And um, he, he takes 
American Air Force planes, he repaints them, he turns them into his corporate livery, and he starts doing the most astonishingly complicated barter and trade deals which take him all over the world. And he uh, then does, starts doing some extraordinary things. He gets the American Air Force to pay him for uh, bombing the Germans. He gets the Germans to pay him for not bombing them. He then doesn't do anything <laughs> and claims the money from both sides. At one stage for profit, he actually bombs his own base. I mean, it's a com- obviously completely ridiculous, as some, some, some parts of this book are completely ridiculous parts of this book. But, you know, as we just heard in uh, Janina's quote from, from Joseph Heller's Lunch with the FT, he is the supposed prototype of what was then becoming the, uh, the great American corporation. This was sort of after Dwight Eisenhower in the 50s, when he was president, spoke warningly about the military-industrial complex. So this was also very much of its age. But, you know, it's, it's, it's an obvious representation of what became the multinational corporation it probably sounded a lot more radical in 1961 than it does now. So that's the one interesting thing. The other thing I, I would say is, Yanina read out um, from uh, our review in 1962, where we quite presciently said, Joseph Heller will never write a book as good as this. And he didn't. No. He wrote other books. He wrote books called Something Happened, Good as Gold, God Knows, various others. Somebody once said to him, uh, Joseph Heller, you've never written a book as good as Catch-22. And he said, who has? <laughs> so free enterprise comes out of it badly, really, doesn't it? Well, I mean, everybody comes out of this book badly. Yanina, what else did Joseph Heller tell us? Um, Peter Aston puts the question, perhaps they could all read Something Happened, which is a story of an executive suffering midlife psychological paralysis. He replies, but the people who best succeed in business would not understand it. They don't have self-doubt over anything. They are committed psychologically to making more and more money, more than their rivals. They enjoy the drive, the tension, the triumphs. It is their recreation. Michael, was that true in 1995 and is it true today? Yes, I think it is. And I think, you know, this brings the two books that I've discussed together, Einstein's Greatest Mistake and many of the characters in Catch-22. A lack of self-doubt among people at the top. You become fixed on something. You become absolutely set on doing something. And then the whole organization has got to be mobilized towards that end, however crazy it is, however counterproductive it is. Michael, can you give us a one-sentence bluffer's guide to Catch-22? Wow, one sentence and one of the most powerful books ever written. Um, I think the only sentence that come out of it is organisations will crush you unless you break free of them. Yes, very good. (laughs) Thank you very much, Michael Skopinka. Our next challenge is set by FT columnist Lucy Kellaway. Her book... The One Minute Manager by Ken Blanchard and Spencer Johnson. Here's Lucy with her pitch. I've chosen a book I've never actually read. It's The One Minute Manager by Kenneth Blanchard and Spencer Johnson. It was published in 1982 um, and is still on sale today. I mean, I should possibly be ashamed of the fact that I've never read it, given that it's only 102 pages long in enormous typeface. So it's really not going to take me very long to read. But I'm curious because... To have written a book that people still talk about 34 years later is quite something. Just from looking at the bump, there's one bit in particular I'm looking forward to, which is it teaches three things, goals, praise, and reprimands. Reprimands are very out of uh, fashion, but I'm a great fan, so I can't wait to read about them. You can join the discussion by tweeting us at FTWorkCareers with the hashtag FTBizBooks. Or you can email us at businessbookclub 
at ft.com. We'll be back in the studio with Lucy in two weeks' time to talk about what makes The One Minute Manager a great business book. And we very much hope you will join us. In the meantime, thank you to Michael Skopinka and to Yanina Conboy. And thank you for listening. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.